Hello, and welcome to another episode of Whitley Penn Talks. This is John Williamson. With me is Jesus Vega. How are you doing today, Jesus? Thank you, John. So today we're going to discuss some elements uh, that we haven't gone over yet in our podcast series, and that's the area of privacy. Um, security and privacy often get intermingled, um, but we've seen a, a, an amazing trend in privacy law over the past few years that has made this subject a little bit tricky and complex to tackle. So first we're going to go over some recent legislative updates in privacy law, um, things that we think you might need to be aware of, um, but we are not going to go into the intricacies of each standard and each set of law. Instead, we're going to discuss some basic principles that I think you should consider um, and just some best practices in establishing a privacy program um, and internal controls to protect the privacy of data subjects. So first, what I'm going to do is, is go over some of the recent legislation that we've seen. I think the most hallmark legislation that we've seen worldwide is GDPR. Um, this is legislation introduced by the European Union. GDPR stands for the General Data Protection Regulation. This has been out for a little while. Uh, it's about three years old. So this law went into effect May 25th of 2018. And simply put, GDPR requirements apply to each member state of the European Union aiming to create more consistent protection of consumer and personal data across EU nations. Um, some of the key elements include requiring consent of subjects for data processing, anonymizing collected data to protect privacy, breach notification requirements, um, identifying a data protection officer. So there's some of the basic elements. So who has to deal with GDPR compliance? Well, simply put, it's any business that um, targets EU citizens and collects their data as a part of their business. This is actually a very worldwide reaching set of regulations. If you don't comply with GDPR, companies can be fined by the EU up to 4% of global revenue, which can be pretty hefty, particularly for large companies. So that's been in effect for approximately three years. Um, any company that deals with EU citizen data, uh, personal data, then you need to be aware of these compliance requirements. Um, funny enough, I, I, I know Jesus, back in 2018, we had several clients that had to become GDPR compliant. I know that May 25th, 2018 is burned into my brain um, because we had to help our clients get across the finish line very quickly. In addition to that, I think most of us remember in 2018, around May, there was an onslaught of emails from companies that we didn't even know that we were signed up on any kind of mailing list for, but our inbox was littered with notifications saying that their privacy practices have changed uh, and we need to go um, kind of update our, our privacy commitments and consent to opt into those programs. So that's GDPR. Now here within the United States, there is not a comprehensive set of federal regulations that addresses privacy. Instead, most of that is handled at the state level. The FTC has some authority over this area. If there is a data breach, uh, if a company is, has failed to follow a published privacy policy, if they haven't provided sufficient security of personal data, the FTC has some teeth in levying fines whenever things go wrong. 
Um, there are some standard uh, industry-specific privacy laws that are managed at the federal level. The perfect example I can think of is, is HIPAA, right, which, uh, which addresses privacy risk for healthcare entities. Another one is the Graham-Leach-Bliley Act, which affects the banking industry. So there are some federal regulations, but again, those are industry-specific. Um, the, the industry agnostic legislation instead is handled at the state level. So recently we've seen um, three states introduce privacy law within the past couple of years. The first one and most significant is the California Consumer Privacy Act, CCPA. So this is a similar concept to GDPR. A lot of the elements are very similar. Um, and who has to comply with CCPA? Well. Simply put, it's any company doing business in California that collects consumers' personal information and satisfy at least one of the following requirements. An entity has at least $25 million in revenue. They buy, sell, share for commercial purposes uh, information belonging to at least 50,000 California consumers, or it derives more than half of its annual revenues from the sale of personal information. So there's California, and we can see recently that Colorado has adopted similar laws, and so has the state of Virginia. Now, there are some, there are some requirements that triggers compliance with this particular law. Essentially, what it boils down to is how much data are you collecting from residents that belong to that state, and what are you doing with the data? Are you sharing it with third parties? Are you deriving revenue from selling that information as a part of your business? If the answer is yes, most likely that's going to trigger compliance with these state laws. So instead of going over the intricacies of each law and the fine level of compliance requirements, what I want to do is just talk about, broadly speaking, some of the elements that each one of these laws contains and what it takes to establish a compliant privacy program. The first one of these elements that I'd like to discuss is your privacy policy and disclosures. So Jesus, let me ask you this. Why is having a privacy policy important and what are some of the elements that need to be in your privacy policy? Yeah, John, thank you. Uh, so if you think about any time you use a service that is online, so let's use Google, for example, you sign up for, for their Gmail. Anytime you sign up for it, you get this notice of privacy of what to expect with the information that Google is going to be doing with that information. They're disclosing to you that they're going to make uh, sales out of the information that they collect on your habits and your if you have Chrome of your social um, usage of it, you know what websites you visit and all that. So it is important for you to to have this private policy and disclosure where you notify your customers are what you're doing with the data. Now, it might be read, it might not be read. However, the fact that you have to acknowledge that privacy policy that is presented to you upon sign up of your services gives you that uh, uh, statement where you can tell to your users, here's what we're doing with it. So there's no way somebody can say, oh, I didn't know because they're acknowledging it. So that's really important why we have to have a private policy. Uh, make sure you specify what the usage of the data is gonna be. Think about, um, I recently bought a fruit uh, logo uh, TV device, not to use brand names, uh, hint Apple. So this Apple device that I bought for streaming TV services, the first thing they gave me was like, here's a privacy notice. You know, you accept or you decline. If you decline, you can't really use the device. Mm -hmm. If you accept, the next question that I got was, do you want to share data analytics with us, Apple? 
the next question I got was, do you want to share data analytics with our third-party developers? So if you read the fine print, they're saying that you're going to help them improve their services, uh, and then you're going to help their vendors improve their services. So that is why it's important to disclose what the data is being used for. Google is very upfront about saying that you're going to use it to improve your web experience, meaning they're going to serve you targeted ads, right. which is what generates the revenue. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and so, simply put then, having a privacy policy that discloses what personal data is going to be used for, it's necessary for compliance, but it also provides citizens, consumers, certain rights, um, and it gives them the opportunity to either opt into those services or opt out. One of the things that we've seen in privacy law recently is a requirement to obtain consent from data subjects. So I think, you know, back in the day, you know, you used to sign up for things kind of unknowingly and you were given the right to opt out, but there wasn't that explicit moment where you had to sign up and say, yes, I'm going to opt into this program. And I think many of us now when we visit a website, we'll see a pop-up and we're required to click yes that we're, um, that we're consenting to share information with that particular company. Uh, correct, John. And, and you see it more often nowadays. It's it's very prominent. Uh, like I said, that Apple TV that I bought a month ago, websites that you may log in, you might be also getting two different pop-ups to acknowledge and obtain or out. Um, so for the use of the service for the Apple TV, you have two options, accept or decline. If you decline, you really can't use that service because that's the minimum requirements that Apple has for you to use your device. However, the next step, which is the third party, that's optional. Like I didn't share uh, on my setup, I said do not share with third party because I don't really want to share my data outside what is necessary for the use of services. And I'm seeing that more often. So so here's a, you know, a, a dumb question for you, Jesus, and I'd, I'd like to ask the technical guy here. So what is a cookie and why is it important? Without going into the technical uh, aspects of how cookie works, uh, it's, it's a file that the website you're visiting puts on your computer to kind of identify you and kind of remember what you were doing. Um, the best example that I can give you is if you ever go visit Nike.com and then you browse around for like tennis shoes and you go to Facebook, you'll see on the side the little Nike ad. That's one of the reasons that they can do that is because they can see the cookies that are left in your computer and they can read what data you've been surfing and give you those targeted ads um, because you probably somewhere opted to allow Facebook to read that the information that's in your computer. So some of the data that companies are collecting on us clearly are the are cookies that are collected on our machines so that they can use that data for targeted ads for us. Correct. They monetize those uh, cookies um, to identify you. Uh, they're also used for technical purposes. So when you, you land on the website, you log in once, the, the browser remembers who you are. You have the option to say, don't sign out, remember before the next time, that's part of the cookie. But it also tracks what else you were doing. Your, your browser will have multiple cookies um, from what websites you visited. The website itself will generate a cookie of you know, your, your preferences, like I just mentioned, you know, logging in every time, that kind of stuff. But also, it's also used to render those targeted ads. So one of the challenges that our clients have faced um, when implementing a privacy program or trying to enhance it to become compliant with these new rules and regulations is data mapping and classification. And, and the reason that I'm highlighting this is, is that 
a fundamental question in security and privacy is how can you protect data if you don't know what kind of data it is and where it's located? So one of the one of the best practices that our clients have implemented is a data mapping and classification policy and practice. So Asus, maybe go into a little bit of what that is and why it's important. Okay. So data mapping might make some IT professionals cringe or maybe cry a little bit though because data mapping uh, is a an exercise in finding your data. Now, some of our listeners are gonna say, well, my IT department knows where the file shares are located and what files you're supposed to have. That is true. The hard part of data mapping is your file shares should contain, so for, let's, let's say HR, for example. Your file share that is related to HR should have only HR data. However, that HR professional might have copied something over to that person's desktop for use offline or because they're working in a file and the, the copying and saving to the network drive might be a little bit slower or they want to have a copy on their desktop if they make uh, any changes that are not uh, really ready to go in they can kind of go back to the master file and get it uh, a copy of it whatever the reason now you have a second copy of that sensitive file on somebody's computer well let's say this person then emails it to Peer and say, hey, can you review this file to see if I didn't make any mistakes or here's what I'm thinking of doing, whatever reason. So now you have a third copy of that file in your email server. And then if that person saves it to their network drive, like most of us have a network drive or their OneDrive or whatever, now you have four copies of that file. The one that is supposed to be where it's at, the person's computer, an email server, and then a file share that is not where it's supposed to be. So your data mapping is uh, a way to find all those instances of that file because you have your, your classified file, like this is HR sensitive, that it would be your classification. And then you have these real files in your organization that were just generated by use and a data mapping uh, solution, which there are many of them out there, would help you find them and track them. and if implemented even recall those files back to us where it's supposed to be and and here's so it, it's, it's clearly very tricky right but here's why it's important under most of these privacy laws um, the government is granting citizens data subjects certain fundamental privacy rights and those are rights to rectification rights to restrict data processing rights of erasure and essentially what this boils down to is if a data subject knows that a company has data on them, they have the right to ask, what data do you have on me and what is it being used for? Furthermore, they can make the request to say, I want to be forgotten. So all data that you have on me, I'm going to request that it be erased or deleted. And essentially, I have the right to be forgotten. Identifying and pinpointing what data you have on somebody can become very tricky through that illustration that you just provided, right, Jesus? Uh, correct, and that's where these data mapping uh, solutions are helpful because if you're looking for a needle uh, in a haystack, well, you're gonna have a hard time finding it if you have to go through your network. But if you narrow your scope down to, well, this is the location where we have, in the example that I use HR records, let's say um, we only focus on that, that's where it's easy to recover that file and say, well, I'm, I'm no longer part of this company, I would like to be forgotten about you from your system. So you just focus on that uh, location. And, and furthermore, 
um, you know, something that that our clients have had to adjust is just allowing their customers or data subjects the opportunity to present that request. And what that means is, is that there's some kind of portal or request function where consumers can go to a company and they're allowed the opportunity to actually make the request so that a company can then timely respond. You know, something else in, within privacy law is, is breach notification. Um, many of these laws require that once there's a known breach, that that breach must be disclosed to data subjects and companies have to tell the data subjects, here's the data that we had and it was breached. There are also some implications that that company should purchase credit monitoring services on behalf of the consumers and it gets a little bit tricky, um, particularly because state laws vary, right? Depending on who the resident is, where they reside, where you're doing business, those notification laws can become a little challenging. But in general, we've seen that as soon as there's a breach, the clock starts ticking and the data subjects need to be notified. What are some elements of breach notification and breach response that we should consider, Jesus, to become compliant with these new privacy laws? Well, the first thing that I would ask is, uh, does the organization have a data protection officer? That is somebody who is responsible for addressing these questions of if we have an event or we suspect or are, or are aware of data breach, how are we going to notify? Who's going to make that call? If we don't have a designated person to act as a uh, protection officer of data, who's going to make that call? Once we have that person identified, the, the other solution that we need to consider is how are we going to disseminate this information to the parties affected? So once we identify the, the people who were identified by a breach, we need to notify them. How are we going to do it? Are you just going to send a blast email? Do you have some sort of instant response plan in place? Do you have uh, approval from senior leadership to disseminate that information? And then to your point, you know, do we have some sort of contract or at least a relationship with a credit monitoring to start offering those services? Yeah, and I, I think really it, it boils down to having a really well thought out incident response plan. Now, the data protection officer that you mentioned, ASUS, that's actually required by law under GDPR. So um, that's actually a compliance requirement. You know, some of the most effective incident response plans that I've seen um, consults the company's attorney um, that can help guide a company through breach notification. Um, so often we think of an incident response plan as containing the damage and we think of it from a security perspective, uh, but building into your response plan, breach notification and ensuring you're complying with law, I think is a really important step as well. What are the question I have for you, Jesus? So um, I've often seen that the companies that are dealing with these tricky privacy issues, that they use a DLP. Can you tell me what that is and how it might help a company comply with these requirements? Definitely. Uh, DLP stands for Data Loss Prevention, uh, and it's a tool that you implement to make sure that whatever you tell it to not allow to go leave the environment will not leave. So I'll give you an example. Uh, credit card companies, obviously, they process your payments. You know, you go to a website, you make a payment that gets processed behind the scenes through one of these companies. They have your full credit card number uh, and uh, the number is in the back of the credit card. Uh, so they have the very sensitive information. Well, that's something you don't want to be uh, left uh, out of the organization needlessly. And if you do need to send it out, you need to send it securely. A data loss prevention tool, what we'll do is we'll monitor your network and your email. 
and if you're trying to email out something that has sensitive information such as a credit card number uh, you, the system will based on design uh, will quarantine to somebody reviews it and allows it to go out auto encrypted which is just basically sending the email but securely or just flat out rejecting it and the user gets notified saying you're not allowed to do this same thing if you are configuring that DLP to not allow those sensitive files to be uploaded to Dropbox or one of those cloud storage solutions. Uh, those solutions are being used a lot. Uh, they've been required by some different compliance industries such as PCI, the HIPAA, you know, those, those kind of organizations have to have something like that to protect uh, uh, your, your PII files and also credit card information. Uh, and then of course, if you have proprietary information, you wanna make sure you have a way to uh, safeguard the data from leaving your, your environment. Yeah, perfect, yeah, thank you for that explanation. Um, you know, one thing that I wanna highlight is that you know many of our clients that are collecting personal data um, are essentially data processors under privacy law. And, and the, the challenge and the tricky part here is that um, for our clients, some of their business partners are requiring some level of assurance that they're actually complying with these laws. An effective way that we've found to do this is through a SOC report. So most of the time when we've talked about SOC reporting, in particular SOC 2, we focused on the security side of things. Um, but and we've, had a, we've had another podcast episode on this, but there are other elements of a SOC 2 report that include availability, processing integrity, and then I'm getting to the, to the two big ones here, confidentiality, and then finally privacy. So for, for those customers, for our clients that have to demonstrate their compliance to third parties, SOC 2 reports have been a very valuable tool in demonstrating that they have sound controls in place that meet all of the privacy requirements that are then easily mapped to various rules, requirements, and laws within the report itself. So that's privacy. Um, I think we've uh, hopefully given you a helpful overview. Um, if you have any questions, um, our contact information should be available. We thank you for listening to another episode of Within Talks.